Well, in addition to happy birthdays to our dear sweet sister Carolyn, um, as I understand it, it's also Eric Thornton's birthday, and since he failed to remember that, um, I'm going to do that for him, and we'll probably not be talking to him for a couple of days now that I've done that, but um, happy birthday, brother. I hope it's a great day for you today, and of course, for our dear sister Carolyn. Um, you know, it's interesting that Grant, and I appreciate one of our shepherds, Grant Knight, coming up and leading our communion and contribution prayers today uh, in Sean Stamp's uh, absence. And um, it's, uh, it's a, you know, one of those uh, kind of uh, uh, serendipitous moments, I guess, that he would lead a communion message that spoke about optimism as I'm beginning a new series on the book of Job. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> What do you know about Job and his story and the book named for him? I mean, we've heard a lot about him. We've heard a lot about the story. We know a little bit of some of the details. We know that it didn't go well for him and uh, went through a lot of stuff. And then it kind of did go well for him. And, and then we're done. Well, I, uh, I want us to look over the next several weeks, the next couple of months at... Um, the story in the book of Job. I like this quote. It's adapted from the satire site, the Babylon Bee. So this is satire. <clears throat> and I've adapted it a little bit. You'll know what I changed. New discoveries from archaeological digs and ancient texts have led biblical scholars to believe that, in addition to all of the other catastrophes and maladies that plagued Job in his life, he was also a huge Texas Rangers fan. <clears throat> This really adds yet another excruciating layer to Job's sufferings, they said. Then added, we also have reason to believe that Job's friends were New York Yankees fans. <laughs> Sounds right. Sounds almost exactly right. Have you ever wanted to look up to heaven and just ask, what is going on up there? What is going on up there? We almost want to say, is anybody minding the store? <laughs> I believe that Job is a real story about a real person who really lived and experienced the things described in the book of Job. That's my understanding. It's doubtful that the main character, Job, was the author of the book that bears his name. Job likely lived sometime between the time of Abraham and David, so sometime between 2000 and 1000 B.C. or B.C.E., in what we have called the patriarchal age of biblical history. It has been suggested that the book of Job was written either during that time, the patriarchal age, or around the time of the exile that we talked about in some of our Bible classes this morning, sometime in the, around the 6th century B.C., the writing of the book of Job makes the translation difficult in many places, as does much of the Old Testament, though the meaning and the message of the book is clear. The book forces us to ask a simple question. Why do I serve God? Job describes the journey of learning to trust God when difficult times come. The book of Job reveals to us the honest struggle of one who learned to trust God rather than his own understanding of God and the way God works in his world. Let me say that again. 
Job himself and the book of Job calls us to examine whether our trust is in our God who is sovereign or if our trust and our faith are in the way we believe and understand God should act. Job started out with the latter, believing in God very deeply, but with the faith that said, this is how God should act, and that's what he trusted in. And then all of that was turned upside down. It's the question of motive. Do we serve God only for what we can get from him? Only so that he will bless us in this life or the next? And I think those are good reasons to believe and serve and obey and and follow God. But if there are only reasons, then our faith will be destroyed sometime during this life. Either in a way that is obvious, we leave God, we leave His church, we leave His Word, or in a way that's not quite so obvious. We just harbor all of that resentment inside of us because God wasn't there when we needed Him, because God didn't do what we thought that God should do. And we never forgive Him for that. Do we serve God because we're afraid of punishment if we disobey Him? Again, a good reason to be obedient to God, but not the most mature reason. Or do we serve God because God, as we sang right off the top this morning, because God is worthy? Because He's worthy of our worship no matter how He acts or doesn't act in our world. How great is our God, we just sang. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all the world will sing, how great is our God. That's an easy song to sing when everything's going well, right? What about when everything's not going well? Can we still sing that song and actually mean it? Actually believe it. That our God is great and our God is worthy and our God is sovereign even though we don't have a clue why he's doing what he's doing in this world, in my world. Some people have called this consumer Christianity. It's related to what we're talking about. This selfish consumer Christianity is perfectly at home and thrives in our selfish, secular, consumer-driven, give-the-customer-what-they-want 21st century America. A recent article says this, Consumer Christianity places our needs and desires at the center of God's universe. When I say that out loud, it sounds so silly and blasphemous. But when I'm living that way, it doesn't sound so bad. (laughs) Consumer Christianity places our needs and desires at the center of God's universe. Religion is a means to an end, a more spiritual method of achieving our desires, whether they are the products of advertising or of nobler sources. Those who relate to God as the almighty provider hold a decidedly one-dimensional view and understanding of him God gives and we receive. Again, is God our provider? Yes. Do we trust him to provide for us? Yes. 
Is that the only reason that we worship him and serve him? And you see the problem there, right? What happens when God doesn't provide for us the way we think he should? If that's the only reason that we are following him and serving him, then when those days come, and for almost everyone, at some point or another, they will, what happens to our faith? Through consumer Christianity, the value of God in our lives becomes predicated on how well God fulfills our needs. Whether that's a better marriage, our emotional well-being, a meaningful life, or an enthralling worship experience. Our view of God becomes something one study referred to as a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. None of us would ever say, that's what we think of God. But take a look inside your heart. Take a look inside your prayer life. Take a look inside your attitude. Have we reduced God to a divine butler and a cosmic therapist? And when he doesn't bring us what we want, and when he doesn't heal our emotional lives the way we want, what then? In the end, consumer Christianity becomes a self-serving religion. It's a recipe for spiritual disillusionment and a formula for a shallow faith. And that's what Job had. And God demanded that Job grow past that. And I believe he demands the same of us today. So again, the question of the book of Job is, why do you serve God? Ask yourself, why do I serve God? When it all comes down to it, why do I serve God? And be honest with your answer. And ask yourself that throughout these studies. Related question, will I serve and trust God even when I just don't get him? And that's the title of this sermon, but also the title of this series. Trusting God when you just don't get him. What happens to your faith then? When God doesn't act the way you think God should act. When God doesn't answer your prayers the way you think God should answer your prayers. When God is not acting in his world, in your world, the way you think a sovereign, all-powerful, all-merciful, loving, just God should act. And that is really the question of the book of Job. You've heard me say many times I've come to believe two things about God. I believe that God exists and I believe what? I'm not him. And if I really believe that I'm not him, then what's going to happen is there are going to be times when he doesn't act the way I would if I were God. Am I going to be okay with that? You see, that's really what happens with Job. Job always believed that God existed. But he had limited God to his understanding of how God should be. And what that means is he had put himself up as God. 
and when God didn't act the way Job thought he should, then he nearly lost his faith. I don't think he did, but he came close. Will I serve and trust God even when I just don't get him? Will a person serve and worship God if there is nothing in it for them? That is the question of the book of Job. And the interesting thing about this is that theme text, that question of the book of Job is asked by none other than Satan himself. And that gets us to Job chapter 1. When God throws a challenge at Satan, it is Job who is caught in the middle. This is very interesting to me how this all plays out. In Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Good guy or bad guy? Really good guy. Verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Faithful man, obedient man, good family man, wonderful businessman, very wealthy, very well respected by everyone. Verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job, not his children, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. He offered sacrifices for his children. That's how devout he was. One day, verse 6, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And if I'm Job, and I'm seeing this going on, which of course he doesn't, but if I am, when God starts speaking, I'm going to go, no, 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 no. Oh, you had to bring me up, didn't you? One of the real perplexing and troubling things about the book of Job is that it's God who brings up Job, not Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, when Satan tells God, hey, you've built a hedge around him, later on, Job is going to say God has built a hedge around him and has trapped him in there and is punishing him and won't let him out. Here, Satan says, you've built a hedge of protection around him and you've given him everything in the world he could possibly want. Of course he follows you. He's got a great family. He's got wealth. He's got a great reputation. He's got his own personal health. Of course he's going to follow you. Does Job serve God for nothing? You take those things away. 
and he will curse you to your face. Why does Job follow God? Satan says it's because God gives him stuff and provides him with stuff and answers his prayers yes. How will God react? Will God say, no, 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 I know Job's heart, that's not it. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. When God throws a challenge at Satan, it is Job who is caught in the middle. Job and his friends had certain beliefs. They believed in the wise and the fool. The wise was the person who was obedient to God and served God and followed the law. The fool was the person who did not reverence God. And God blessed the wise and he cursed the fool. Their theology was simply this, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That was it. And in Job's life, that's how it had been. He was righteous and he had prospered. What's going to happen when that's no longer the case? And so secondly, God turned Satan loose on Job, though not completely. Again, verse 12 of chapter 1, God says, okay, have at it, but you can't touch him. Take everything away that I blessed him with, but you can't touch him physically. And so we know what happens from there. This is round one. (laughs) His livestock are taken, his servants are taken, his children are even killed. And the losses come in rapid fire order. While he was speaking and giving Job the bad news, another man came with bad news. And then another man came with bad news. The pain and reality of these losses is seen in how much Job loved and cared for his children. Again, sacrificing for them. So concerned he was for them. The fact that later in his life Job had other children helps to ease some of the pain perhaps, but they could never take the place of their older brothers and sisters in the hearts of their mother and father. Just ask anyone who's lost a loved one, who's lost a child and had other children, who's lost a sibling and had other brothers or sisters. But God limits. God is calling the shots. Satan has power and uses it to try to destroy Job's faith. Will a man serve God for nothing? Take away everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. He's just serving you and worshiping you and obeying you because you give him stuff. Because you take care of him. Don't do that and he'll curse you to your face. And so that gets us to chapter 2 and round 2. Again, there's a limit. The limit is this. Earlier, God had said you can't touch him. This time, here's what Satan says in Job chapter 2, starting with verse 3. This is the back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Wow. Verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. 
And so round two starts. Satan says, okay, sure, but you won't let me hurt him physically. And if, he, if I do that, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, fine. But you can't kill him. Interestingly enough, that's the one thing Job prayed for later. God, finish the job. Take my life. But God had set that limit. Satan is still acting, but God forces him to only act within the limits that God establishes. And so he strikes him with these horrible, painful sores all over his body. His wife comes and says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? He's got it in for you. His friends will come and be of absolutely no help once they start talking. And we don't really know the tone in Mrs. Job's... uh, words. In chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Which is exactly what Satan told God Job would do if he took all these things away. Job replied, verse 10, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin. In what he said. And that's different than what the narrative reads in chapter 1. At the end of round 1, it just says Job didn't sin. At the end of round 2, it says Job didn't sin in what he said. And when he does speak, we get a look, a deeper look, an honest look into his heart and how he struggled. Job was faithful and trusted God when he had his children, his wealth, his reputation, and his health. How will he respond to God when all those things are taken from him? How would we? How will he respond when God is not acting the way God is supposed to act? How will we respond? How do we respond when God isn't acting the way we think? A sovereign, all-powerful, all-loving, merciful, just God should act. Will we take our worship away? Because God doesn't act the way we think God should act. Or is our trust and faith in our God? And not in what we understand about Him? Finally today, Job's friends come to help and comfort him. In chapter 2, verses 11 13, through 13, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come. And when they see him, they can't believe it. They sympathize with him. They're there. And they sit together. And they don't say a word. They tear their robes. They do the sackcloth and ashes thing. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. At the end of chapter 2. And I want to say, if only they had stopped there. (laughs) Because when they do start taking, they're going to give a clinic on what you shouldn't say to someone who's suffering. (laughs) What you shouldn't say to someone who has lost a loved one. They do all the wrong things and say all the wrong words. But before we hear from his friends... We do want to admire them for this. They sit with him in silence and they share his grief. That they did right. 
And sometimes that's all you can do. Before we hear more from them and from Job responding to them, Job shows us how to verbalize our feelings when your body and your heart and your spirit are suffering and God is doing nothing about it. Job chapter 3 is a perfect example of how to honestly verbalize your disappointment with God. And you say, oh, Bill, we should never say that out loud. Job does. And we'll see that next week. So as we close, would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Satan's question. Do these people serve you for nothing? You've given them all these blessings. Take those away and they'll curse you to your face. Would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Would you serve God if you could not understand his actions or his inactions? Is your faith based on your understanding of God or is your faith based on God? You say, well, Bill, that's all we can go by is our understanding. Well, not true. Not true. Because sometime along the way, you have not understood what God is doing. And if you continue to follow him, then you are living and acting like someone whose trust was in the God rather than the God's actions. Finally, would you serve God simply because he is worthy? You are worthy of my praise. What would you add to that? God, you're worthy of my praise if you heal my marriage. God, you're worthy of my praise if the test results come back favorable. God, you're worthy of my praise if the church is doing X, Y, Z. But God, if you're not meeting my expectations, then all bets are off and you're no longer worthy. And when we get there, we put ourselves on the throne as God. Would you serve God simply because he is worthy? You are worthy of my praise, we say. And so before Job can work through all of this, he's got to work through it, and that's okay. In fact, he's blessed by God at the end because he honestly struggled and faced his difficulties, unlike his friends. And so he can't get to that part of trust and obey until he gets through chapter 3 and venting, expressing some very hard things to hear about what he thinks about how God is running his world. And the way he responds to his friends, I think the power in the book of Job are the speeches of Job, starting in chapter 3. This morning, will you trust and obey? Trust! I guess they could have written that song, Understand and Obey. (laughs) Wouldn't have been as catchy. Are you willing to trust and obey? God says to believe in Jesus as the one Son of God. To repent of your sins, to change your life. 
so that it's more in line with the word of God and the will of God. To confess that faith before others and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you willing to trust and obey today? If you've not done that, we'll help you do that. If you're wondering how to do that, we'll be glad to talk to you. To help you know what that means. To learn what Job learned. To trust in God. And to live obediently to Him. If we can help you with that, come as we stand and sing our song together.